I'm Kimberly C. Palm. As I travel throughout each state, I realize that death is just a moment. It is how we live until that moment that matters. Finding connection with friends, family, and complete strangers. Journey with me. This is the Live Well, Die Well Tour. Dr. Christopher Kerr, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast, Death by Design. I have been following you for years and and you with your TED Talk and and now you've got a lot of things exciting happening with uh, some documentary things. And I just applaud you and Buffalo Hospice for really thinking out of the box to help educate not only your own community, but the community at large when it comes to the United States and even international. So congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah, kind of unplanned and, and very unexpected. The best things happen, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you are a hospice physician guiding individuals and families through the next whatever that might be. Yet you have become the student once again at the bedside of the dying. And, you know, some of my greatest teachers are those facing end of life. So what are some of the greatest lessons from dying patients you've learned and that you actually have applied to your life? Oh, um, I think uh, almost uh, some hope or optimism or faith. Um, I don't mean a re- in a religious sense, um, but that there's a better story at the end of life um, that's, that's life affirming, actually. Um, watching so many dying people um, find some sort of integration or peace or being put back together or comfort or reuni- reunited or forgiven. Um, it, 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 it goes from a story of emptiness and finality and grief and suffering to something actually that carries a deeper meaning um, that says it's not for naught, you know, that um, the people who loved and cherished you best aren't gone from your heart. Um, so that's, I think, what I've learned. You know, I, I have to concede. I, I, think, I think people are only truly gone when we stop talking about them. And, and because I'm talking to you, maybe even dreaming about them. Um, so you've done a TED Talk, and it's been widely viewed. You are the CEO of, at Buffalo Hospice, but you've written a book. And you're now involved in several productions on Netflix and PBS around the subject that might some might consider a little non-medical coming from a physician. So what are your thoughts when it comes to dreams and people on their deathbed or them, they're, they're, them dying and, and actually having really in-depth conversations with those, can I say, on the other side? Yeah, I, I'm not sure of the source. And one thing we've worked really hard to do is not to use pre-death as an interpretive keyhole to look at the, what lies beyond, but instead simply translate the words and experiences of dying patients and view that as a mystery unto itself. Um, because otherwise it's a blank slate and you can come at it from paranormal, you can come at it from religion, symbolism, what have you. Um, reincarnation, you know, and, and we're not doing that. We're just uh, t- taking their experiences and just essentially um, trying to translate and honor them. Um, 
I forgot what your original question. <laughs> no, this is good. This I talk is, too much. No, um, I love it. You, but, but you know, when people are trying to, when they're at the bedside observing dying patients and they're having these in-depth conversations, it's very non-clinical. And, and yet you as a clinician are sharing what you've seen. What has it taught you? I mean, well, I, I think the first thing is that dying isn't a, isn't a medical paradigm in which to be solved, right? I mean, it, it, it is a human experience. And what we've done in medicalizing it is we've defined it by its parts, organ failure, for example. And it's a closing of a life, not failure of a part. And the dying patient doesn't go, oh, my kidney thinks this. What they're doing is they're, it, it's, a, it's a natural vantage point that forces one to reflect it, your perception and your perspectives are inherently changed. Um, it's it just, it just the way it is. It's, 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 it's to be expected. Um, so it draws people inward. Um, and the issue isn't that the person's issue is how we're perceiving them and, and viewing dying um, as a medical dilemma really misses the point. It's a, it's, it, it, it inadvertently dehumanizes what is a very deep and powerful human experience. And that includes realms that um, are non-physical. So, and they're not necessarily woo-woo. It's just understandable that you go to things you've loved and cherished, for example, um, pains you've had, regrets you may have had, uh, hopes don't diminish. You know, we've, we did a, a very interesting paper where we looked at dying as a traumatic experience, as an adverse experience, like, um, and, and we looked at the, there, there's some tools to measure something called post-traumatic growth. For example, war is the classic example. So yes, you know, predominantly negative and all of that, but also positives come out of it. And what we found was people who were having these experiences actually showed positive post-traumatic growth. So they were learning, they were adapting, they were understanding, they were gaining insights. So to, dis to look at dying as a, just a simply physical lessening, as a diminishing process, uh, fails to honor what it really is, which is this larger realm um, of introspection and thought. And uh, it dreams are not dreams, it could be conversations. But you know the fact that people are, there's this paradox, right? So you're physically going in one direction, but actually psychologically, spiritually, um, you're going in a very different direction. Oh, I love that explanation. Well, thank you. It's, it, 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 no, it, it is interesting. It, it, it forces you to kind of reframe, and I think we get dying wrong. Um, we've clearly lost our way with it, right? It was more um, within the natural cycle of living, and it was more shared. And what we've done is create umpteen barriers between us and the dying. Um, you almost put them on a shelf. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, the, 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 they're still living. <laughs> that's what's lost. And they're intensely living. Uh, and that's what's lost. Yeah, of course. Of course. And so, you know, you, you mentioned the word woo-woo. Um, and, and I have to say, I'm not a, a follower of, of that. But after 20 years in hospice and end of life uh, field, there are things that I cannot explain. There are things that I've seen and there are things that I've heard um, that 
make me believe there's something that I that maybe I'm not supposed to understand, and nor would I believe it unless I saw it. But you and your research around what you're calling dreams, when it comes to observing individuals at the last stages, what what does that mean? I mean, does it mean conversations? And why label it dreams? Do you feel like they're in a state of dream or subconscious at some point? No, it, it, it's actually a lousy uh, label. And I tell you why it stinks is because if we're to listen to our patients, um, the things they tell us emphatically is, no, no, you don't understand. This isn't like a dream. Or I don't normally dream or I don't normally recall their dream. So these are retold as lived or actualized experiences. So dream is the only reference point we have for it. Um, I think there's a couple of things to consider, though, is that <clears throat> the dying process, there's, 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 there's two realities to it. One is that dying people on their trajectory eat less. They don't eat more. Um, the other is the pull to sleep is, is really the driving force. People don't die awake. Um, even if you have the bad flu, you're, you know, you know, your body tells you, go to bed, close your eyes, do less. And that's what dying is. And dying naturally, a couple things happen. Sleep architecture gets destroyed. Um, you're in and out of relative sleep. And, um, and so does your level of attention or alertness. And one of the things that may be happening, and I don't mean to m- m- explain this away, um, but, but that they may be lucid dreaming. So the intensity of these experiences feel real. I, at the point, truthfully, I, I'll be honest with you, I know nothing about dream medicine or sleep medicine, and I actually don't care. I, I think that really misses the point. The problem with doctors looking at this whole phenomena is this need to almost mansplain. Right. I, and, <laughs> that's amazing. You know, it's, it's, and, and really, this is where the science of medicine should meet its art and just have reverence for what is being observed. Um, and I don't think that's wrong. I can't, I can't image love, mm. but it's undeniable. It exists. The, 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 the proving of this, um, neither, neither diminishes or discounts it in any way, shape or form. It just simply is. And I think all we did with our research is we did a couple of things. One is we put a massive amount of quantification to it. So we put measurables to it. We did use validated instruments. We measured, talked to people every day. We even filmed them because people would, would dismiss and to belittle who they were. Um, and the other thing is we did is we ruled out confusion. So we did tests for confusion. We ruled them out. You obviously had to sign lengthy consent forms, have witnesses. So <clears throat> we tried to control what we could control, but that didn't mean we tried to discover the ideology. I, I think it's irrelevant. Um, this has more to do with soul than it has to do with, it's a distinction between brain versus mind. Wow. And if you're obsessed with finding the neurobiologic basis to soulfulness or spirituality okay but 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 it doesn't doesn't discount the experience and where doctors get really stuck is they have they have enormous difficulty with dying period let alone the experiencing of the dying 
and that's what we're kind of focused on is we're saying, okay, okay, well, they're dying. That is just is what it is. What's their experience of dying? Um, and that's kind of where we're at. Well, talk to me about some of your experiences when you observed uh, some of uh, the individuals that you were doing this research on. Um, what kind of life experience did you see happening? Um, so I have no natural predisposition to, towards this at all. It's much more comfortable to be in a hospital and playing a traditional role. I think what, what really changed it for me was that it, one is it wasn't about me and that uh, it, it clearly it was therapeutic and it was not only therapeutic for the patient in the bed, but it was therapeutic for the loved one. And so if palliation is about relieving suffering, it's relieving it in all its forms, including existential. Um, so if this brought comfort, then uh, it just had to be honored, I guess. And you found that because some of these patients, when they're talking, for example, to maybe their mother that has been gone decades, you found the patient as as well as the family finding comfort in, in that? Or was there a difference? Because I can see how it is, it's comforting for the patient to have, you know, you feel like you're going to face death, this death experience alone. And and this interaction might bring some comfort. But I also see that maybe this would disturb family members of observing this as well. No, we published two papers, a total of 750 surveys and interviews of family members. And the best way to sum it up is what's good for the patient is also good for the loved one. Um, it turns out how we see uh, someone die uh, very much influences how we grief and process. Uh, and and uh, inevitably, what happens is it 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 you know beyond knowing our loved one is physically comfortable, so we're not seeing overt signs of suffering. Our next questions go to where are they and how are they? Um, so you know, I, I can give you countless examples of it if you yeah, want. Yeah, maybe but, one. Okay, well, let, let, let me give you an uh, one of the most moving one examples, and I've seen this now a couple of times. Is let's say you have a husband and wife, and they've been in love, and they're life partners for six decades, and part of their shared kind of journey was the loss of a, a child, and the the mother is on her deathbed, and her partner is looking down onto her. And she's re-experiencing the reunion of the lost child. And so what that does is that takes death as empty and loveless and uh, sorrowful to full of love, meaning, and comfort. Um, then how he, and you can really see this in the film, um, we focus heavily on the bereaved and uh, they relay stories of having witnessed these things and being much, uh, it's, it's easier obviously to let go, knowing that they're not alone and that they're in comfort. So, you know, through your research, um, what are you hoping to share with those who are working in the end of life field, as well as those who are journeying with loved ones as they face end of life? What, what is the sum of this research? And you, what, what are you trying to help us understand? 
Well, I, I, I think a couple of things. I don't, when you say uh, people who are caring for the dying, I'm not so sure how much influence you have over physicians. Um, I think they're kind of going, they're getting farther from the bedside of the dying in a way. You know, healthcare is ever more fragmented, um, subspecialized. You know, Marcus Welby doesn't exist anymore. You didn't know him your whole life, then he follows you into the hospital. I think that's very different with people who work at the bedside, nurses and aides. If you talk to nurses about this, an overwhelmingly, an overwhelming percentage of them had some experiences. And so it's kind of like preaching to the choir. I think what I'm hoping it's doing and what we're seeing it doing to some degree is it provides a framework to validate what people are seeing or experiencing. That's one thing. So I get a, a tremendous amount of feedback. If you look at the TED Talk set, site, what's really interesting isn't the TED Talk. It's the responses um, because there's thousands and thousands. And what you're finding is people are finding the need to relay their observations. So in other words, you know, one of the more significant life events is the death of a loved one. And many people have had this experience and wondered about it. So it's put, it's allowed them to have a context to understand what they've either experienced or observed. I think for people who are facing the dying process, I think that it, um, it, 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 it casts dying as less than uh, a, a physical end. That there's this, this other component to it, and you, we hear a lot of that. You know, they're anxious to see the mother they lost, sort of thing. Um, and, and 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 we get a lot of people who say, "Yeah, you know, I, I like it so much better when I'm sleeping. I get to have these experiences." So I, I think it's doing a number of things, which is then is is to add another dimension to our understanding of dying. Um, that is just less, less medicalized. I love, I love that. I, I really do feel like there's something there that is in, even intriguing for me. Um, you know, it makes me think, you know, the dream that I had last night, I mean, was that somehow, you know, subconsciously the future? I don't, it just makes you think of, of what we don't know. Um, through this journey. So talk to me a little bit about why do you feel this subject is so intriguing to us? Um, do you think even for myself, because I'm drawn to this, that it even prior, hopefully years before my own death, that it somewhat brings me comfort that maybe I will see those that I've loved. Um, and maybe it, it, lessen, it lessens that scary fear factor just a tad for me. Yeah, I, I don't, I think it's intrinsic to being human, to be fearful of mortality. Um, that's the reason why we survive, is, is because we're afraid of the opposite. So we, we fight intuitively, instinctively. Um, and we also ponder and we, we worry. And <clears throat> so whether we like it or not, um, there's some level of latent fear. And I think the idea that if you open the door a little bit and you find there's some light, <clears throat> I think you want to go towards it. Um, for many people, I think it draws them back on reflection of the things that matter. You know, just as you said, will I see this person? Um, and, and I think that provides a form of hopefulness that, that's needed in an otherwise dark thought. So it makes sense. So to, let's talk about your filming 
and and you're you're having this PBS special coming up. You're you're a part of a Netflix series. Talk to me a little bit about how did that evolve, but also how was it getting permission to actually bring film crews in to observe this? Because that is not an easy thing to do, especially in an intimate setting where people are are facing uh, end of life. So I I mean. But yet, I find some people really lean into it as well and want their legacy and their story to be told. So talk to me a little yeah, bit about... It's actually, <laughs> it's actually a great story. It's actually the easiest part of the process is permission. And uh, in my book, I write about this towards the end. It's kind of a subplot, which is that not a singular person who was asked to participate um, declined. And um, <laughs> this is phenomenal when you consider there's women who pride themselves on how their hair looks and whatnot in the eighth decade of life. And um, I'll tell you, it's really a great story. And uh, it's a great story for, for who we are as people because there's obviously no secondary gain. You know, some of these people are literally interviewed in the last days of life. Um, what it tells you is. People, no matter what their state, long for a couple of things. They long to have relevance and meaning. Their words need to be heard. They need to be listened to. And they find um, something intrinsically worthwhile in giving back, even when there's no thought of return. And it's a very, um, it's a very positive message. I mean, nobody said no. And everyone's in the book, that's everybody's real name. Um, the story of the filming is actually hilarious because what happened was, so the whole work came from the fact that I had to go to my own education, obviously, and it was really nurses who educated me on this and pastoral care and volunteers and music therapists, but not medical school. And then what happened was I was trying to teach it. And... Uh, we're in a generation where it's everything's evidence-based and, you know, people would say, go back in the literature and they say, well, you know, it's written about the humanities because it is, it's in the humanities from the beginning of time. Um, but there's no evidence. So that's why we did the study, which was to convince the medical audience of the value of this. So we published in total probably eight uh, manuscripts, peer-reviewed journal, peer-reviewed journals. But, you know, I can't say that we've moved the, the mountain. But what happened was it, um, snuck into the lay community, not by us. It just got picked up. And it went from the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, Psychology Today, Huffington Post, and then it went around the world. And that matters for this reason. It matters because it's, there's a disconnect between the medical community providing care, the place no premium on this, and the people who are receiving care who put enormous value to this. And that gap in, 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 in resonance is, 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 is worth looking at. So that's kind of what, what happened. And then um, I didn't plan on doing it, was never aspired to do a book, but then people came looking for me because of the response to the um, TED Talk. And again, it's less about my TED Talk, it's more about the, the subject matter of relevance. Um, and then, um, and then Netflix, and then what happened with the PBS, the public television documentary, was we had a ton of footage 
obviously, that was meant for a medical audience. It's now it. going to be seen by the majority of the country. I love it. Yeah. So it's all, it's all, it's all ass up and inverted, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, it, it, it's kind of cool to see what's happened with it. It's funny from my perspective, because you kind of just want to move on with your life. This was years ago, but it kind of keeps pushing you forward because it has its, it has its own weird momentum. Um, but it was never an objective to um, get higher visibility on us. The only the only bothersome piece is I keep wishing other people would take it on because I am very concerned that it gets too much associated with the messenger. And like, oh, there's these guys in Buffalo and they're, they're in this weird stuff. I think it needs to be validated by other people. So that's where we're at. This is... I just think it's very intriguing. I mean, you're you're the CEO of a, a a hospice that are taking care of people at end of life, but you also have proven once again who's driving change in healthcare, and it's it's not it's not necessarily the medical community. It's it's us who are receiving the care. We're interested in this, and suddenly it becomes in the for- forefront of it. But also, you know, I think we're especially in the last 12 months looking for comfort in some kind of connection way. Um, And, uh, you know, it does lessen. um, It it sort of even makes a weird sense that maybe there is something to look forward to. Yeah, I gave a talk on this. Have you ever heard of Endwell? Yeah, of course. Shoshana yeah. Ungerleiter, of course. Yeah, so I gave a talk on, they, they had a series with, um, uh, like people like Roger Daltrey, etc. And I gave a, a spiel on it from December. And that's exactly what I spoke about, given these Was it that, a part of the Take 10? Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're you're up on it. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, you can look for it there, but it, it because there's patient videos in this too, so it's kind of cool. Well, you know what I'll do is when this podcast airs, I'm going to give links, of course, to your TED Talk, to the uh, Take Ten, um, and that way people can can reference this. But tell us when, where, and how can we access these documentaries coming up, and where can we find your book? Sure. Um, the best way to the book's called Deaths But a Dream. Um, and the documentary has the same title. Uh, it's, it's, I, I, why we're talking actually, I just got the announcement that I think it's going to be, um, shown in most places in April 15th, um, on public television throughout the country. But you sh- it's also shown by the World Channel, so you should be able to see it through YouTube. Um, oh, at some awesome. Point. The best way to find out about all of it though is just to go to my site because there's links to the book, links to the patient videos, which are really, really what needs to be seen the patient and the family videos. Um, your question about the bereaved, I mean, it's so much better answered by them than me. Oh, uh, and, where, and what is that website? It's it's Dr. Just D-R, Christopher, uh, with a C, uh, Kerr, K-E-R-R, uh, dot com. So if you go there, there's all the links. Awesome. It, my one question is, <laughs> what's next for you and Buffalo Hospice? What What are you working on behind the scenes? Because oh, you know what we're doing, which is really cool. Is we're we, so we 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 stumbled upon this formula where we did all this research, we coupled it with a book and the film, and that was all an accidental recipe, right? They were all independent, but just kind of coincide. We're doing the same approach, and what we're looking at is we're looking at caregiving, and this simple statement that people say, I, you know, I go to these grief groups that we offer. And I was 
in awe of them. And one of the things you heard was the best, hardest thing they'd ever done in their life. And I liked the positive psychology of that. We view it in terms of hardship and strain and demand, but the relationship, your, your life is forced to stop. And you almost reacquaint to that elder parent and you're forced to be present and reflect and remember together and all those things. And you, people find courage to give care they didn't know they were capable of. Mm. And then what the implications of that are for um, um, loss and how much the care before affects the loss. I'm very interested in that, this notion of medical harm. We see so many patients come here who just found out within days, their family found out that their loved ones are at the end of their life. And meanwhile, it's forecastable six months ago. So we traumatize drawing by, by treating it and prognostication as though it's, it's acute. And really, the awareness is only acute. It's been known. And, you know, the, the, the difference between somebody who has a serious terminal disease and has their physician has the attitude, we're going to hope for the best, we're prepared for the worst, versus the one who just denies reality. And uh, obviously we're at the receiving of that end of that literally every day. We take care of 11, 1200 people a day. And so much of what we do is damage control. So really look at how it's done well. Um, so all of those pieces of, of caregiving and before care affecting after care. Um, so we're start, we started the film, you know, we're filming this um, young girl from Bangladesh this weekend who is nonverbal and the entire family when she has bad nights sleeps around her chair and how they view her as the biggest blessing in their life. Mm. And that is such a different way to view, um, uh, you know, that these challenges is, is something to be cherished and, and affirming um, love in life. Um, as opposed to how it's often portrayed. So just like I think the work we did uh, on end-of-life experiences showed another aspect that wasn't that, that, that offered more than it took, I, I think the same is true on the caregiving. So that's kind of what we're interested in. I can't wait. That's amazing. And, oh, man, I and, you know, I can't thank you enough for your time and your research and expanding uh, my own mind when it comes to uh, experiences and 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 what what we kind of call dreams what you're referring to as dreams as conversations and and exposing some really comfort at end of life and and lessening my own fear about my own mortality you guys are doing amazing things in Buffalo and I just uh, I've been watching you guys for a while now and it's just amazing to see. And I have to say thank you for not only carrying this to your own community, but looking at the world as your community, um, especially with technology these days and and taking it to another level and another venue, such as a documentary. Because I love documentary film, and this makes me feel really connected. And thank you for sharing um, part of your documentary with me. I think it's extraordinary, and I can't wait for the community at large to be exposed to all the research um, that you guys have done. But you must, you and the staff that you work with, you must walk away feeling, man, I received a heck of a lot more than I gave. Um, and it just seems, 
with the staff conversation in your, your documentaries that they too feel very blessed to be a part. Well, that's part of the second book was that I think it's very interesting that people think the people who do this work are depressed or depressing. And you come here and it's actually a very happy, upbeat atmosphere and culture. And it's because we're privileged to be, to witness the best of humanity, um, often the form of character. Um, so yeah, you're, you're, you're right. Well, I thank you for what you uh, do. Uh, you're obviously right to be doing it. Your questions are very different, but spot on. So <laughs> I think you, Dudeker. I mean, hey, <laughs> if there's anything that I can do to support your efforts. Well, let, let, yeah, let's follow up another day and do another one. I would love that. Absolutely. Keep doing good work, and uh, we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer. This podcast is produced by Jason Andre with Seven Season Films. If you're interested in telling your story via podcast, look him up. You can find him at sevenseasonfilms.com.